0: Um, okay, thank you. Let's make a start. Um, welcome to um, the the, the Centre's panel on criminal justice careers. I'm it's very pleased to have here today a, a sparkling array of guests um, who we hope are both going to tell you a bit about their own um, paths to where the, the jobs they're currently doing and something about the organisations that they, they currently or have worked for. Um, and the general plan is they will each um, speak for 10 minutes, um, starting with Rachel Taylor, because she's on the board behind you. Um, um, uh, which will leave um, uh, well, formally about 20-odd minutes for, for questions um, at the end of the session, and we hope all well, that will just kind of morph into, um, into tea and cake, um, which will take place in the common room when, when we've finished, um, before um, the uh, Roger lecture starts at five. So, without further ado, um, um, it's my great pleasure to welcome Rachel Taylor from Fisher Meredith Solicitors. Um, so, Rachel, um, ten minutes, the floor is yours. Thank you. No, you have to stand at the...
1: Great. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, so my name is Rachel Taylor. I'm a solicitor um, at Fisher Meredith, specialising in police and prison law. Um, I'm going to focus today on police law because of limitations of time um, and also because of the fact that it takes about 80% of my, of my work um so basically the issues that my clients um come to me about um although it's a very niche kind of practice um, it's quite a broad range of problems um so it's things from police brutality which is the normal kind of case that you get so things like assault and battery um deaths in custody um wrongful arrest um unlawful searches malicious prosecution so when the police have taken a Uh, Action against somebody when they shouldn't have done and it's malicious so there's there's a wrongful motivation for that Um, if someone's been cautioned and it can be challenged and general abuses of power Um, issues of stop and search strip search is a particularly contentious issue at the moment Um, discrimination um, especially race discrimination um, particularly the metropolitan police Um, a lot of my cases centre around that Um, retention of data, Um, so for example things like um, information if someone's been arrested, um, information if someone's attended a protest, um, and then things like um, DNA or fingerprint sampling, um, disclosure of data, particularly on criminal record certificates, so uh, when people apply for a job um, for So something like teaching or working with um, young or vulnerable people. Um, There's been quite a lot of challenges about what information the police are permitted to disclose on those criminal record certificates. Um, Failures to investigate is particularly uh, new and developing area of law at the moment. Um, So mainly for um, deaths and um, serious sexual um, assaults if there are police failings around the investigation. And then that can give rise to action and then general issues of misfeasance. Um, and then it really is a really dynamic area of law. The law changes all the time. The kinds of cases that we're dealing with changes all the time. Um, and so and it's also very kind of politically sensitive um, and socially reactive. Um, so a good example of that would be the riots um, in 2011, which um, one of the main contributing factors of that was seen to be um, the use of stop and search. So it really is operating in this very dynamic, very reactive environment. Um, these are just a few cases which um, have really hit the headlines in the kind of area of law. Just to be clear, they're not; they, these weren't my cases, um, but just so that you can associate with things that you may have seen. Um, Okay, so the the kind of actions that um, I can, can take, the routes that I can take um, when assisting a client are complaints, judicial review, so that's challenging an action as being unlawful or challenging a particular policy as being unlawful, um, civil action, which is basically suing the police, um, and then also inquests. The reason that that's in brackets is because I've never actually um, conducted an inquest myself. Um, what I kind of do day-to-day um, is a vast range of activities, um, but basically my responsibility is to advise and assist the client throughout throughout the course of any potential, potential litigation. Um, and a lot of the time, my clients will be very vulnerable, so there is a lot of time spent engaging with the clients and, and, and really assisting them. Um, a lot of the time, they won't have had any kind of... Um, Engagement with a solicitor before, so it can be quite a difficult process, particularly if they've they're coming to me with something that's really had quite a traumatic effect on them. Um, So my task will be um, in constructing a case, obtaining evidence, um, forensic evidence, witness evidence like CCTV, documentary evidence, and also expert evidence. Um, As I say, analysing and constructing the case, carrying out research because it is a very dynamic area of law. It's something that It's evolving all the time, so in order to progress matters, um, there's a lot of research involved um, with advocacy and negotiation with the other side, so the defendant will be the the police, um, so engaging in advocacy and negotiation with, with them drafting documents, conducting court proceedings and working with barristers as as you move towards the trial of the matter at the court. Um, I put securing funding down there. That's in brackets um, because it's kind of aside from the substantive work, but really it should be emboldened, underlined and at the top because it's absolutely central to um, ensuring the the ongoing cases um, for Clients being able to do that. Um, sorry, I think I just mm-hmm. skipped <coughs> over. There we go. So that's what I do day to day in the office. And um, there's also quite a lot of work and activity that I do um, outside of the office. Um, so a lot of that is campaigning. Um, the three groups that are listed there are groups that I've been particularly involved in. Um, I do some media work. So. Um, Interviews, um, like newspaper kind of articles and comments, and writing as well. Um, I've just contributed to a book that's about to be published in September. Um, so one of the groups that I work for, work with, that was listed um, about is Stopwatch. Um, Stopwatch is a coalition of lawyers, of academics, of young people, of activists, basically trying to promote effective and accountable policing. Um, and those are the main aims that you can see listed there Um, Stopwatch aims to do that in a variety of of different ways Um, whether it be um, like campaigning um, media work um, um, carrying out research advocacy um, or actual litigation Um, so that's just one of the research papers that was published of years
2: ago,
1: mm-hmm. oh I did it again, sorry, um, this is one of the publications um, about stop and search and the use of stop and search, this is an article um, in the Evening Standard last year, a Guardian comment and that's me and my friend. Um, on, on uh, London Live a few weeks ago. Okay, um, so just a little bit about how I came to be in the position that I am. Sadly, not all of it was on our course. Um, so I studied at Oxford. Um, I started nearly exactly 10 years ago. Um, I studied law. I then went on to LSE, where I studied uh, a master's in criminology. Um, the reason for that was I wasn't entirely sure whether I wanted to practice law or whether I wanted to engage more in a policy kind of work. Um, but I did come to the conclusion that I did have a love for the law as sad as that seems, and so that's why I came back to do law. Um, I then did my LPC, which you need to become a solicitor at the College of Law, and I'm actually a solicitor advocate, which means that I'm, I can kind of undertake the role of a barrister as well. so I've, I've got my higher rights of audience. Um, in 2008, so just after I finished my MSc, I went to Jamaica with the Centre for Capital Punishment Studies, um, and there I was mainly doing death row work, um, going to, to assist with the, with the death row cases, and there was very little legal provision and legal support out there, so me at 22 was their main point of contact, um, which I'm sure scared them somewhat considerably, um. I then went to Houston um, with Reprieve, um, where, again, I was mainly doing, or exclusively doing, sorry, um, death row work. That was mainly mitigation work, so carrying out a lot of research, investigating uh, our clients' backgrounds in order to um, advocate for them that they should not be sentenced to death um, once they've been found guilty of their, their crime. OK, these are just um, a few of the... Organisations that I've done voluntary work for as well, just over the years, and that is me.
0: Thank you very much. Cool. Right, um, um, if you've got any questions for Rachel, if you just hold them in your head um, for a short while, and we'll return to them. The Thank you. Um, right, our next speaker is um, Amrit. Oh, sorry, oh, oh, next. Yes, that's fine. Um, as of the last two weeks
3: from the of justice council yes thanks Ian and Ben for inviting me um yes I'm going to do my presentation kind of the other way around I'm going to talk about how I got to where I am first and then a bit about what what I do in my current role as chief exec of the of justice council which I've been doing for all of nine days as Ian said so um I don't know how much insight I'll be able to give you, but I'll tell you a bit about what I think I should be doing. But first of all, how did I get to um, to where I am? I've spent almost all my career um, working in the voluntary sector, working for charities, working around criminal justice issues. Um, I should say that I got into the criminal justice world pretty much by mistake, um, having left university first time around. I didn't really have any clear idea of what I wanted to do. I went abroad for a bit. And then I got a job working for a national charity called NACRO, which works with largely people coming out of prison or young people at risk of offending to help them turn their lives around. Just in a straightforward administrative role. I applied for a whole range of charity jobs. I wanted to work in the voluntary sector, I wanted to work for a charity. And um I got interviews at NACRO and cancer research. And if I got the other one I probably would be doing, you know, work around cancer research or healthcare, which when I'm doing fundraising I often think would have been an easier choice. But anyway, um but so I, I went into working for NACRO in a straightforward administrative role I think it was there that I really got interested in criminal justice issues having already entered the field and slowly made my way through their communications department doing a number of roles and at the same time did a master's um, in criminal justice policy um, at London School of Economics as well actually Um, and that really gave me a a foothold it gave me some credibility in terms of looking for more policy-based roles and my next job Um, Pretty much as soon as I finished my master's, which NACRO had kindly let me do, I then rather ungratefully left almost straight away um, and went to be a senior policy officer working for a charity called the Fawcett Society, which some of you may know. It's a relatively small campaigning organisation campaigning around gender equality issues. And there I led their work on women in the criminal justice system. What that meant in practical terms, in terms of what I was doing, it was a policy role in the voluntary sector. What that tends to mean is a mixture of producing policy reports, which... Obviously, written reports based largely on existing evidence rather than doing primary research. They did have a, a small element of primary research about it, which make policy recommendations for, for government and for, for criminal justice agencies. It also had a sort of campaigning angle to it, work with the media, contact with politicians and policymakers and some campaigning, public-facing campaigning work. So it was a real mixture of different elements of work around women in the criminal justice system. Um, From there, I moved on again to another small charity called the Criminal Justice Alliance, which represents a coalition of around 65 other criminal justice charities campaigning for a fairer and more effective uh, criminal justice system, where, again, I did similar sort of policy and campaigning work with a slightly broader remit largely around prisons, probation and sentencing. But also, as director, admittedly a very small organisation, it also involved doing really interesting things like payroll finance, management, HR, all that sort of thing that if you work in the voluntary sector ends up on some non-specialist's kind of desk to try and get through. Um, I did that for about four years, um, growing the organisation slightly so I could, there was a big incentive to fundraise and bring in people so that they could do the payroll and the finance and that sort of stuff. And since then I spent three years at another small charity called the Police Foundation which is a policing research um and a uh, policy development organization and i'm now as of last week um, chief executive of a charity called the restorative justice council um as the name suggests it's an organization that um works around restorative justice issues i'm gonna have a look at my notes here because like i said i've only been there for 10 days so i don't want to forget anything really important that we do um so sort of first of all just the restorative justice council and what we do um and then I'll tell you a bit about what I do there as Chief Executive. But for the charity as a whole, um, I'm going to assume you all know largely what restorative justice is, given given your backgrounds, bringing together victims and offenders to try and uh, repair the harm done. Um, And I think now is a really important time for the development and spread of restorative justice. It's something that there's quite widespread support for. Um, All three political parties and the Ministry of Justice would like to see more of it. There's quite a bit of evidence behind it now. But despite all that and quite a long-term push to have more of it, it's fairly marginal to the justice system. Its availability is hugely variable between different geographical areas and different parts of the criminal justice system. And even where criminal justice agencies do restorative justice, they often don't do it very well, or in some cases don't do anything that would really be thought of as restorative justice. So our job at the Restorative Justice Council, and we've just received some Ministry of Justice funding to do this, is to try and set standards for restorative justice. What does good restorative justice look like, and how can we quality assure delivery to make sure that that's happening? Um, this is government funding. That presents all sorts of challenges for a medium-sized charity. We've got about 15, 16 staff at the moment because we've also got a campaigning and lobbying arm. So on the one hand, we're taking money from government to do work for them. And on the other hand, we're lobbying them, telling them they're doing things wrong and they should be doing it differently. And that's quite a common tension in the, in the voluntary sector. At the moment, it's quite straightforward because our aims and the Ministry of Justice are broadly in line. And I've only been there a week. But undoubtedly, at some point... Um, that tension will play out, and again, it's not unusual um, in the voluntary sector to be dealing with that. Um, In terms of what I do, um, there's a whole sort of mixture of different things. Like I said, I've only been there a fortnight, so mostly at the moment I just try and remember people's names and that sort of thing, try and work out how to turn my computer on. But I guess my role is largely fit into three broad areas. The first bit, and the most interesting bit, is being the public face of the organisation which is worrying in lots of ways but it is my role nonetheless and that's really about promoting the restorative justice council and restorative justice and that's through engaging with stakeholders, <laughs> meetings with policymakers, um, other decision makers, um, media work which is all glamour. I was on three counties radio at 6am talking about Luton Yacht's restorative justice quality mark a couple of days ago which was every bit as thrilling as it sounds and um, being asked why why it didn't involve, why restorative justice didn't involve going to, around to the offender's house with a baseball bat. A question that I literally couldn't think of an answer to. Um, but there are, there are more interesting bits of media. There's also speaking at events, conferences, and a whole range of different bits of outward-facing engagement. That's, I think, the most interesting bit. The second bit is about managing people, primarily. Um, I now manage a talented and committed team who do almost all of the work of the organisation. And my job is, well, apart from taking the credit for that, it's about making sure that what we want to get delivered gets delivered, and that what we do adds up to, at very least, the sum of all those little bits, and hopefully to more than that. And the third bit, which is a really important part of my job, it's a really important part of senior-ish management in the voluntary sector, and it's something for which I've had absolutely no training, is the kind of organisational development bit, the making sure we work as an organisation. Almost anyone who works in a senior position in the volunteer sector has to do things like strategic planning, um, organisational management and fundraising. It's not, I'm a sort of policy wonk by background, it's not something I know very much about, and it's, but it's, it is a really important part of my job. And being able to do that, at least to a tolerably good standard, I think is a really important part of, of working in the voluntary sector. And fundraising, like I said, is an important part of that. And it's the bit that makes sure the organisation is going to survive in the future. Um, so that's a quick roundup of what I do now and how I got there. I mean, I think working in the voluntary sector is really interesting and challenging for lots of reasons. I really value the independence that it gives us. But other people find that with that independence comes the problem of being an outsider and not being able to get access to the things that you want, whether that's information for research or whether that's access for sort of lobbying campaigning purposes, um, and also you don't work in the voluntary sector you don't have any power. you can only persuade people to do things. It's very rare that you can actually tell them to. Some people find that some people I've worked with find that sort of outsider position very challenging. other people like I, I've always found it very beneficial. I think the other thing to say about sort of my career through the voluntary centre, such as I've reflected on it, is that it involves a whole number of very different non-specialist skills. I've done all sorts of things from policy, campaigning, media, like I said, things about organisational development. It's, something, it's, it's a sector where you tend to have to be able to turn your hand to everything and where you have to be willing to learn new skills as you go along. And I think that I've only managed to get the jobs I've got by being willing to take on different things as and when opportunities have arisen. So... That's a sort of very brief insight into a volunteer sector career. Challenging, I think. Interesting. Largely chaotic a lot of the time. And probably not what I thought I would have been doing when I left university. And it's often incredibly difficult to explain to people what it is that I do do. But I'd recommend it, I think, nonetheless. Thank
0: you very much. Um, right, our third speaker is um, Ann rick Panasson from um, the Oxfam Youth Affairs Service.
4: Hello. Um, I've approached it slightly differently. Um, hey-ho. Um, I suppose um, I'm a senior manager within the public sector. I see myself as a social worker first and foremost, and a Scottish social worker at that. This will become more relevant later. But what I want to do is actually look at some of the key concepts, a bit of a run-through of my little world in my little head, and actually trying to work out how can we be true to what I think are some of the key fundamental issues facing young people today. So when I left the university, which was a long time ago, I was a young person. Um, and I think that's the premise that as whatever career you choose, and you will choose many different careers in many different forms, I suppose the one word of warning as you become the future leaders, I guess, is be true to those, some of those fundamental values that you started out with. Um, so I'm going to break this down a bit. So we're going to talk about youth offending because I like wordplay and what does that mean? We'll talk about, a bit about Scotland, because I love to to Scotland. And then I'm going to just have a guess of what is going to come in the future. And I've got to do that in about eight minutes. Okay. Youth offending. What is youth? Is a basic concept, isn't it, really? We think we know what it means. Do we? The age of criminal responsibility in England is 10. In Scotland, is 8. In Germany, it's 14. And I think in Scandinavia, it's 15. But in England, and Wales, um, we... Say that at 18, you are a fully-fledged adult. That's interesting. At 18, we know what is right and wrong, good and bad. At 17, we know that. At 16, we know that. At 10? Particularly interesting when you think of some of the neurological research that's going on. Our brains are developing up until 25. So you guys, some of you, most of you, all of you, I don't know, probably are still growing up. You are growing until you're 25. Fantastic. Fantastic you're working out what is the world around you. Well, that's quite interesting. Well, so we're not quite sure what youth is, and we're not quite sure what the age of criminal responsibility is, really. So then what happens? Then we say, okay, if you belong to some of the most disadvantaged areas, socially, economically, that you have generation upon generation of abuse, we are then going to put to you the same standard as if you had... Loving parents, secure background, etc., etc. Does that seem fair? Does that look okay? Offending. Hmm. I think offence is coming in and out of fashion. If you happen to be, I don't know, a member of the Bullinden Club, for example, and you trash a restaurant in Oxford, are you likely to get arrested or are you likely to become the next Prime Minister? No idea. But if you do if you're 17 and you're in McDonald's and the edge of the Barton state, are you like to get arrested? Are you like to be facing a judge and jury? It's these are intentionally trying to make you think of what is it we're trying to do. And justice for what, actually? For whom? Why are we, when we say youth justice and when we're trying to make the world a better place, to what end? By whose definition? Scotland, yes. Um, The reason I bring Scotland into this is um, I trained as a lawyer in England, then I went to Scotland and uh, I went to Edinburgh there. I did my Masters there. And the big um, driver then was a guy called Kilbrandon who divorced the behaviour of a child from the child itself. Made a system that was more child-friendly. Which, by that I mean that actually it said the responsibility is not with the individual, it is with society. It is a political issue, though I say it. Now, that raises some interesting questions, doesn't it? Hang on me, that child who's kicking off, who is presenting aggressive behaviour, that is our responsibility. We are responsible for some of the stuff that happens on the Cali Road. Makes your head go a bit oh, wobbly. Makes mine go wobbly, anyway. It's that sense of... And then to do that, I suppose... Within the state, within an increasingly politicised agenda, where the state is shrinking, and I think some of the dilemmas John faces, I face every day as well, because there are some things that are clearly not okay, by anyone's definition, irrespective of your political persuasion, mostly. Kilbrandon was also very interested in the voice of the child, but how do we articulate children who who have been neurologically damaged and who have been repeatedly abused, to give a voice. How do we do that? How do we encourage that this person who has been hurt and repeatedly hurt over and over again can actually have the courage to say what he or she needs? These are thoughts I go through on my mind when I manage a youth offending service. What also is also interesting to me is the fact that in England in particular, not Scotland... The criminal justice system is very, very difficult to understand. And we expect children to work out how to behave in court. The same standard we would expect of children with different issues. That is just not okay. The future then. Well, I do think we are in some very interesting times. Offending... Is actually reducing. We do have one of the safest countries in the world. Fact: youth crime is at its lowest it's ever been. Also, fact: the victims of crime are often young people, which is often ignored. The same young people. Curious. So, what is going on? No one knows. I mean, probably one of the places, a few world that wouldn't be to, would be able to understand the question. But why is youth crime reducing? There's speculation that's to do with the internet. There's speculation to do with social media. That's the word on the street. That actually more and more kids are actually using different types of um, interaction over the net. Well, if that's the case, are they more vulnerable, less vulnerable than they are on on the outside? I haven't constantly told you what I do, because I actually think that's not important. I like... it isn't. What is important is, I think, from my perspective, the values that you're going to hold in whatever career you're going to choose. And to really think it through... I get. Um, I was. Struck, I read them. Um, I read one or two books when I was younger, thank God. Um, and there's a quote from *Crime and Punishment*, um, and I can't remember this, but it's something like this: It's, do you understand, sir? Do you really understand what it means when you have nowhere to go, absolutely nowhere to go?" A response suddenly came to mind: "For every man must have somewhere to go." I would say social work in particular gives an opportunity for a child or someone who's heard for somewhere to go. That's it. Thank
2: you very much. Um, right, um, our next speaker is uh, code, now MOPAC. And you'll have to tell <laughs> them what MOPAC stands for. Right, okay. I'm the longest in the tooth person here. Uh, and I've spanned a number of uh, continents as well. Um, I graduated from university in 1972. My first job was in 1971 um, as a researcher on a. Um, we were looking at uh, drug-free therapeutic communities on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I was a criminologist, and, a, and I still am, and I can still consider myself a criminologist. I'll sort of pick up on the plea around um, values, because I think if I find any thread uh, over the last 43 years, it is that thread. I'll talk about four different parts of my life, which still exist. Um, I'm an activist. I'm a professor. I'm a researcher. I'm a policy person, um, and my current job—I loved about well, the title. I did make that up myself. I'm the head of evidence and insight for the mayor's office for policing and crime. I've worked in um, for large research think tanks. I have i uh, worked for universities. I've worked for the Prime Minister, a guy named Tony Blair. I've worked for police commissioners. Uh, and I've worked for five of those since I was in the Metropolitan Police Service. And now I'm working for a mayor named Boris, who might have been a member of the Bullington Club. <coughs> The kinds of things that I've done in terms of both thinking about um, how criminology dovetails activism and um, improvement, because a lot of what I do now is uh, I usually have um, data in one hand and a two-by-four in the other hand to push uh, a criminal justice system. And I can say that actually... Because I'm working in London, I am actually working nationally and internationally. Two weeks ago, I was in New Zealand, at the best of the Minister of Justice of New Zealand talking about joined up justice and how New Zealand, very interesting place now. I think on the cusp of doing some quite innovative work to start merging the benefits of thinking about victimization and offending in very different kinds of ways so that um, they're not separate. Um, And that you have something like problem-solving courts, which enable you to not separate out justice as if it is only for victims or only about offending or only about society. In 1978, I founded a refuge for battered women. And if anybody's ever read any of my work on violence against women, that work was... Totally influenced by sitting around kitchen tables with women who were fleeing violent men. And that's where I learned my work around thinking about violence. It was first from the women themselves, and then looking at the criminological literature and finding that actually it was totally strange. It was in a language that, um, first of all, privileged in those days, stranger crime. And if anything has changed in the 30, sorry, 43 years that I've been doing this work, we no longer assume that violence against women is a stranger-based event. That has changed. So the other thing that I can say is things do change in your lifetime. And the whole concept of violence against women is now one of, of um, known danger, not stranger danger, of accessible danger, not um, some the bush lurker uh, who um, is rare is very very rare exists but is rare so the kinds of careers that I had I started doing um, the uh, started with the therapeutic communities uh, work but also did an evaluation of um, the drug um Mandatory drug laws in New York. That was my, one of my big projects. I was the quantitative uh, researcher on that project um, and vowed that I would never, ever, ever in my entire life ever work for government again. Huh. So sometimes you change your mind because actually you're better at being a chameleon than you are um, not. So one of the things that I decided to do was to go inside the belly of the beast and to do change from within. But that, I missed the next 25 years, so I'll go back to that. I was a university professor. I've taught in universities in the U.S. and the U.K. And much of that work was um, looking specifically at uh, some violence against women, fear of crime, one of my most hated concepts in the world. Don't ask me about it, but I can talk to you about it if you like. Which is how I ended up working with Ben, because I wanted to make sure that fear of crime was never spoken about ever again. But we can talk about that later. A significant part of my career was being the, the research director of the Economic and Social Research Council's program on violence, which was a five-year research program in the UK with 20 projects across the UK looking at violence in prisons, domestic violence in pregnancy, violence in schools, um, lots of different kinds of forms of violence. And what that basically did for me, who was very much, my own work was based in looking at violence against women, was move me up into a different kind of strategic level in my own thinking and think about how I could take the lessons of research to practitioners and policymakers, and actually that's when I changed. Um, I mean, I didn't change, which is one of the problems. I've always been a bit wacky. But what I decided to do, that maybe I could do that for a living, uh, and that's when I made the decision to go. I applied for this job in a cabinet office, and I did not expect to get it. And Oops, they hired me. Oh, that, was, that was a surprise. Well, I was very surprised to get that job. So it was 18 months working in something called the Office of Public Services Reform, which was looking at general criminal justice improvement. And one of my projects there was this small little project called Citizen Focused Policing, which was the whole work around the satisfaction of police, uh, satisfaction of of victims by um, police service. And I began to realize that actually lots of the different kinds of things that I was doing. Um, in terms of my own academic work, really needed to be translated into an inside criminal justice. So that's really why I sort of went in. I just thought, people think I'm nice. No, I like to get dressed up. I could work in those areas where they never really thought I would be such a um, huge troublemaker or um, really challenging, or as radical as I might be in my own values and things, they they somehow let me in. Now, why? As, and I'm sure there was lots of my colleagues when I joined the Metropolitan Police Service. 18 months later, ten and a half years inside the Metropolitan Police Service, and I'm still alive. My colleagues did never ever have thought that I would. I'm sure there were bets taken, perhaps, in um, of how long I would last inside the Met, because. It was. It's not something that's necessarily overly compatible with my politics. But yet, because I had done research with the New York City police in the early mid-70s, I started my, um, part of my PhD involved riding around squad cars on the Lower east Side of Manhattan. And the work that I did uh, in Worcester, Massachusetts with the uh, Battered Women's Refuge Well, I was running a master's in criminal justice course at the university, and I had many police officers as my students. So I had no problems working with police. When I came to the U.K. in 1982, I came as a refugee from a sexual harassment case. I had to leave the United States. Um because my case challenged the left in the United States. The person that sued me initially um, was one of the leaders of the left movement in the United States. Um, I was in a university position, and I was an untenured sociology professor who decided not to um, let it happen anymore in my university. So when I came to the UK, I came with feminist credentials that were impeccable and therefore had a, an, an ability to do work in the kind of radical feminist community and do work in the academic community and pass between the two. And in those days, in the early 80s, there was quite a lot of tension going on um, in those different camps. So I've been able to combine my personal experience of what it's like to be a litigant in a fairly famous case. I had to do my own publicity in those days. Um, and the kind of work I've done and taken through that thread that I took you through, um, ended up in 10, and that's one of the reasons why I'm such a stubborn person 10 and a half years in the Metropolitan Police. And within that context was able to do uh, and it took 10 and a half years to get some traction with some, I think now, research, which has, is robust, academically standing research that enables the police not to go backwards. <laughs> um, well, it's very easy for that to happen. It takes less than a nanosecond um, for that to happen. But there are certain kinds of things, certain stakes that are in the ground now, which I think are quite important. Not that, uh, not that it has been solved. The, only a month ago um, I appeared on Channel 4 television breaking the eight and a half years of research I did on rape, um, which is now, you will see in the next month, I can't talk about it, but in the next month there will be some things that are about to come out that um, will take that to another step. What you have noticed, I would hope for those of you who have been following the Operation U-Tree, is the language that's presented in court has changed in those four very famous trials that have just been occurred, the most famous of which is currently going on, which is the Ralph Harris case. So I encourage you to think about the language that's being used in those four cases and this fourth one, the language of exploitation is now explicit in the DPP's case. So I suggest that, and actually I feel comfortable to say that I think I probably influenced some of that. So I'm at my my interest in the my long-in-the-tooth life has been change. I think there's a thread in that change. It has always accompanied robust academic standards in terms of the challenges that I put in front of um, every single institution I've ever worked for, including the universities, but also the police service and others as well. So it gives you a bit of a flavour.
0: Thank you. Let's see. Um, right, our final speaker before we break for questions is um, from Amnesty International. Your
5: Thanks. Um, so I, I work for Amnesty International, and uh, I'm in the legal office at, at, at Amnesty um, I think a lot of people know more or less what Amnesty does. The the legend of its origin is that a British lawyer um, on his way to work one day picked up a newspaper and saw that Portuguese students had been arrested for, for toasting freedom, right? And so then he founded this group, and the idea was to 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 sort of like highlight cases of political prisoners. And of course now it does much more than that. Um, and more than just uh, those who are arrested for their politics <coughs> and for who they are. We're also looking at, at human rights issues generally. And 50 years later, it's, it's the largest human rights organization in the world, in fact. Um, a lot of what we end up doing is, is on the basis of the research that we've undertaken, wherever, wherever it is that we're working. So I'll, I'll say a few things about some of the, the pieces of work that I've been involved in directly to give a sense of that. Um, but of course, what I want to say about the research is that it's not just research for the sake of doing it. Um, it's in order. It, the purpose of it is to generate change. The framework is a human rights framework. So the the, the idea is, we've identified human rights violations. We, um, in the course of the research, we identify what things what things we think need to be changed, and who has the power to make those changes, or should have the power to make those changes and then we prepare recommendations in order to see those changes actually implemented. That's the beginning of the process that involves a whole host of work afterward that might be uh, lobbying with government officials for changes in practice and and in policy, with lawmakers for for legal change. It might mean going to the courts, in some instances either either amnesty doing it or uh, groups that we work with doing it, 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 it could mean a, a variety of other methods, but, but the idea behind the work is not just to document human rights violations, but to do it with a purpose, with the purpose of, of, of changing it. Um, so the basic method is uh, that one or more of us goes and uh, after having sort of done, done the preliminary work to identify, you know, in a broad sense what we think the issues are, uh, we go and we speak to the people who are most directly affected by 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 the issue and so a typical example that's that might be of, of interest to this group is um, conditions of detention. It was the first thing that i that I did when I was at uh, before amnesty. I worked for ten years at Human Rights Watch. so I was twenty six years old and I went into fifteen Venezuelan prisons and and inspected sort of the conditions there, talked to hundreds of of detainees. Talked to prison officials and then did a whole bunch of interviews around the sort of the edges of that to get the get the context um, and that means sort of walking into prisons and then with the notebook sitting down with with individual detainees and and getting their their accounts and there's a whole sort of methodological question series of questions about that that you know, we actually spend uh, a cu- period of, of 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 two weeks training new researchers in. so it's very very you know we can't really go into it but of course There's a whole set of uh, protocols that we have to observe around things like the safety of the people we're interviewing, um, ensuring that they know what what risks they're taking, that we respect the fact that they're taking risks. I mean, you all are used to this from, from the context in which you'll have done research, but it does become fairly critical, fairly pertinent, immediately pertinent when the consequence of something you do might be torture or death. So we have to we have to take this all very very seriously it also means um, some some interesting points about what the research we do does and doesn't say and I think that's also interesting for this group because more and more human rights organizations are appreciating that as important as it is to get human accounts to get individual accounts of what people's experiences are that's not representative of course and especially when we deal with things that aren't the individual Portuguese student who's arrested for raising a toast to freedom, but rather uh, patterns of discrimination or uh, you know, tackling inequity in other forms. We need something that's a little bit more robust than just we talk to a few people. Um, so we're having to, to explore a range of methods that that allows us to test the, the reliability of, of what it is we're doing. By and large, Fortunately, um, and, and through the use of, of, of testing these things through lots of secondary sources, I think we're able to say that we we're able to, to m- most of what we do is not contested. Um, when you get really really down to it, by people in the situations, government officials, or, um, or you know, or those who are living in the in the communities we're, that we're talking about. Of course, you know, it's always going to be a big show and dance about how we deny all these allegations and so on, but. Privately, at least, officials will often tell us, "Okay, yeah, that, that really does that really does uh, stand up to, to what our experience is." But we do need to be much more rigorous in how it is that we do this. And so, I think, looking forward uh, in the work that I do, in particular, I'm going to be calling on uh, many more of the sort of social science uh, kinds of research methods to be able to look at things, uh, whether it's in the in the area of of criminal justice or in any of the other kinds of, of, human rights considerations we're looking at. And in particular, when we're looking at things that are economic, social, or cultural, um, I'll say to, I'll say two words about policy because before we, before we, I'm the, the department that I'm in thinks about human rights policy and thinks about public policy that is conducive to respect for human rights, the promotion of human rights. And so before we undertake a particular research project, we're thinking about what human rights policies and what, what public policies we need to see from the states, or how it is that the policy framework is not consistent with respect for human rights. So a couple of examples, I'll never get through them all. The uh, one thing that we're often seeing is a disconnect in, in public policies. Uh, an example picking up on some of the drug work is um, it it has been known for a long time what injecting drug users need not to if they want to stop doing that, and the combination of methadone treatment and the availability of clean needles sort of people just can 't stop overnight the sort of faith based healing is 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 not does not work um, so the city of Vancouver about ten years ago. Was, was offering needle exchange programs. And you could go and you could get your needle, and you could get clean needles if you turned in a, 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 a used needle. And the Vancouver police would stand outside and arrest <coughs> everybody systematically who, who walked away from that needle exchange. Um, a, similar, uh, a similar disconnect in, in social policy is the, the in you know, thinking about HIV prevention and the, the you know, condom use as a major sort of way, way among others of preventing the spread of HIV, and this is and it's been known for years that um, that, that sex workers are at particular risk of uh, particularly women who are sex workers are at particular r- risk of getting HIV um, when condoms aren't used aren't used properly and you know we won't go into the whole public health literature here but the the critical thing then is that we need distribution of condoms we need free condoms we need uptake in condoms we need you know there's a whole series of very very obvious steps that need to be taken. That authorities, by and large, accept. Nevertheless, New York City, up until about two weeks ago, um, and four other, three other major U.S. cities, San Francisco among them, use or used, in the case of New York City, possession of condoms as evidence of the crime of solicitation or other things connected to prostitution, to sex work. That, of course, the, leads to people who engage in these activities, not carrying the things that we're trying to get them to, to use in order to prevent the spread of HIV. disconnect Disconnecting social policy. Um, I have time for one more thing about uh, policy issues, which is, I think it's fascinating the way that criminalization um, is sort of a, the sharp end of a series of, of other policy steps or practices that, that either violate directly or potentially violate human rights. So we've been looking a lot at, uh, at sexuality, about things, things to do with starting with same-sex sexual conduct, which is criminal in much of the world, and then thinking about the whole range of other laws, not necessarily criminal laws, or the way that the, the systems, legal systems and, and, the, and social norms work to entrench discrimination. Um, same-sex sexual conduct—I've mentioned criminal criminal in the United States until until very very until about 10 years ago. Um, this country did much better on that, um, and it, Europe in general does much better on that front. But but it does much worse in, in some of the other areas of what we would regard in um, for straight people as as basic aspects of family life. So the ability, of course, to marry who you want to, but also to have the kind of family you want to—adoption laws um, or or other aspects of of the ability to lead to lead the life with your family. Um, Amnesty's submitted uh, third-party amicus briefs in a couple of cases in the European Human Court of Human Rights um, that deal with uh, questions relating to this sort of both the stereotypical use of you know what a family is to inform. Law and policy, and also what the attendant consequences are for the families themselves, for, for children in those families, and for the, 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 the members of those of those families. So, in one case that I'll mention, uh, it's called X versus Austria. A, um, a a a kid, he's a teenager, uh, is living with uh, two parents, same-sex couple, um, who are, I think, they have a civil civil partnership. In Austria, He wants to adopt the second mother. He wants the second mother to adopt him so that they can be a, a, a recognized family. And the social worker recognizes that's in the kid's best interest, and, and everybody's in agreement that this is a very, very good thing. But Austrian law allows one male parent and one female parent. This is not uncommon in Europe. And so there's, there's this whole sort of you know legal framework that does not accept um, sort of essentially... Uh, what this family is today, the way, the way some people at least are living their lives and are free to do so, um, that is sort of, I think, not, of course, criminal, but it's flowing, it's part of this larger um, picture of how, at the sharp end, criminal law is used, but, but other kinds of laws and policies are used to reinforce and entrench discrimination. I'll stop there.
0: Thank you very much. Right, well that's been absolutely fascinating and we've now got um, 20 minutes um, for questions and discussion, um, at least before we continue that in a more informal setting Um, so the floor is open I've been asked by the who's doing the recording of this session because we're creating a podcast if I can repeat everyone's question um, so that it gets on this machine at the front here, Um, so when you see me start doing that, it's not because I'm treating our speakers as stupid and even having the questions reinterpreted, it's a technological thing, Um, Andrew, your hand is shot up. Okay, so the question, Betsy, is in terms of the various things that you've done and described to us, um, which of those do you think have had the most impact? I might add why as well.
2: Um, well, I think the place where I've had the most impact is the refuge for battered women um, because that still exists in central Massachusetts. It's 28 years old as an agency. It still um, gives service to women and children in central Massachusetts so that's real um so that's a tangible yes I think I made so I go first to people's do I did I have I made people's lives better and I think probably that one is a I would say there's evidence there to suggest it 28 years later it's still in operation um other places where I think I've made some tangible benefits um Probably in terms of the discourse around violence against women. Um, I think intimate intrusions, intrusions did change or challenge criminology um, in 1985, and that book did make um, an impact. Um, and I wasn't the only person that was saying those things, but it, I think it did challenge traditional criminology in a way. Um, This year is the 30th anniversary of the Women in Crime Division of the American Society of Criminology, and I was the founding mama of that. So that is another tangible benefit to women criminologists and others who do work on gender. Um, I've got legacies, lots of legacies. Uh, I think the confidence stuff that we've done with Ben and John has had an international impact in terms of the current discourse around legitimacy and procedural justice. So that one's a good one. And the rape stuff, which is just on the cusp of being published, is dynamite, uh, and that is very good. So that's a legacy too. And I could probably name many others, but I think I've kind of left some legacies that I'm proud of.
5: So the question is,
0: if I get it right, um, do you have any tips <laughs> <laughs> on, for someone who's doing sexual advocacy work on uh, on campus? And what do you think the best tactics are for getting criminal justice agencies is to change around these questions? Yeah,
2: I will answer this question but I also think the panelists probably also have quite a lot of experience around having to manage um, stubborn institutions. I've done all of the above. Um, I have been un- totally unreasonable at times and then I have tried to be as reasonable as possible. Um, sometimes I'm not very good at that. But um, I, I think what's tried my patients the most in the last ten and a half years in the med has been the work around rape. And uh, before that, I also engaged my own university, well, my first university, with lots of thinking about um, how they were doing things so badly um, in terms of what the evidence says now. I think there's a lot of evidence. So I, what I do now is I go in with This is what the research says. This is what the evidence says. It is insurmountable. This is the way. This this is what it is. um, And your policy is over here, and this is over here. Um, And so I, the way that I worked the Met was to be, I think, unduly patient, but and impatient at the same time. By continuously, I wrote the performance structure. So that enabled them to see that they were not performing very well in rape. Um, They were still not performing very well. No one else is in the country. But we are now, I think we have a a consensus in government that there's a crisis in um, the treatment of rape allegations. I can guarantee you that there is a consensus that we are now in a crisis. I don't think that they... They thought there was some fixes, but now we're actually. I wanted to take it to the brink around crisis, Um, and and basically saying that I thought rape was decriminalized was a way of causing a bit bit of people to think a bit differently about what that was. Um, And I can talk to you later about the evidence base. The evidence base is, you know, that alcohol is a and drug use is a main um, uh, background for the reporting of rape. Youth is also a background for reporting of rape, domestic violence, mental health issues. These are all rife um, in terms of the kinds of allegations, and they need to think differently about the way they manage that. So I can talk to you specifically. But I'm sure all of the panelists have had to deal with institutions that don't want to hear what the evidence says. And it's those kinds of negotiations that... Are sometimes are done with patients and sometimes should be done without without patients. There were times when I would be on the other side, of, um, outside the home office with a megaphone during the time when we were on the streets around changing the law of homicide and provocation during the Karanjadalawaii case, and then I'd put on a hat and sneak upstairs in the halls of justice and sit in very quietly and listen to the case and then go back out. So that, to me, is the epitome of the way I've I've lived my life, basically. When I I shouted, I I was shouting, but when I would sit as a chameleon in a place, I would also, I've heard things in rooms and been in places at the highest level that I never thought I would ever be in. So all of that information really taught me about you challenge institutions in as many different ways as possible because they don't change spontaneously. They're not a morph organization. They must be forced to change what they do. Does
0: anyone else want to come
4: in? question? I think, personally, it's that ability to assess the situation and apply what tool you have to do to get your message across and it can be and also try not to compromise your own values too much because there are going to be times when actually what is more important the outcome you want to achieve or your own value and there is without doubt whatever, whether you go into policy whether you go into leadership wherever you're going to go you will have to compromise I think the acknowledgement that actually some things don't happen overnight and it might less experience I would say yes the uh, realism that you'll have to compromise that it, and it doesn't happen overnight patience is I think the best it just doesn't so yeah different types of toolbox you can still be an ardent feminist in the tent the choice
3: is going to be yours where do you think you're going to get a better outcome just yeah I agree with a lot of that I mean, as I mentioned about in my talk I mean, one of the things that Having worked mostly in the charity sector, is, as I said, you don't have you don't have powers, you don't have levers. It's not like working inside institutions where you can, however difficult it is, you can pull. It's about persuasion, and then it comes down to what the most persuasive route is. And when I worked at um, at the Fawcett Society, I think there's a problem right across the charity campaigning world: It's this debate about how you have the greatest influence? So you better, you know, shouting with a megaphone outside the building, or are you better sort of quietly working the corridors and power. And I think it is horses for courses, but I think some of the things where I feel that some of the work I've done has had the most influence in terms of actually changing practical things, which is always the most satisfying bit. It's actually been the quieter, more conciliatory behind closed doors where you're willing to kind of go to them and talk to them. That's not always appropriate it's not always the right way to do it. And sometimes I think you've got to get outside and shout and yell and and make a fuss just just to get listened to at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree on the multifaceted approach. And, in fact, that's kind of a reason why I do, like, obviously mainly practice in law, um, but also do a lot of campaigning around the edges as well, because one of the great things about law is that you can kind of force a decision. If something's unlawful, then there's something that you can actually practically do about it. Um, but also, um, much of the time, so it's taking an issue like stop and search, um, even if it is unlawful, you, you may just get a payout of damages. You haven't actually changed any kind of behaviours. And that's why the kind of campaigning things is... Uh, that side of it is a a lot more important on a kind of wider scale as well um and i mean the the work that um, we do at stopwatch um we do try and kind of take every tactic available so um working with individual police forces but also maintaining independence so that we can we can ensure that we retain our integrity um have a position in the media have Engage in research um, and also engage in litigation as well. So, you know, every option available to make your voice heard, you, you take it.
5: This is a related point. I mean, not so much about about internal. Well, it is about internal advocacy. It's also about ensuring that the work that the organization is doing is reflecting the issues that you're seeing as important. Um, and specifically, I'm thinking about things, issues like rape, or issues more generally where um, gender analysis is often missing in, in the specific context of human rights work. It's very, very common to see genderless human rights analysis, in, or everybody in the report is male, everybody in all the abuses are described in a way that applies to men. And that, 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 that's, you know, it's, I think um, groups like Amnesty are becoming a lot better at recognizing that that has to do, in fact, with the framing of the issue to start with and getting better at adapting um, to this and, and forcing ourselves to very consciously say we have to, we have to do this. So the example that I'm, that I'm thinking of is a, uh, we were looking at uh, a, slum, a series of slums in Nairobi and we were looking at forced evictions roll up with trucks and, and police often and say, you have to leave. And so that was, a very, that was a very important set of issues. But we also were hearing a lot of other information while we were doing this. And one of the, one of the pieces of information we kept hearing from women was the uh, the amount of rape that was occurring in these communities. And part of the reason is actually fairly simple to, to resolve, which is that there aren't enough public latrines available so that they're close enough to where people live. They have to walk far away. For, for various reasons, um, women are doing this at night when they're most at risk, walking long distances, and it's going to and from the latrines that this is occurring. Now, I guess I'm somewhat hesitant to bring this up because even though that's important, it's it's a very it was a great um, uh, moment for us to be able to document that and start to see some changes on that. It was critical, it responded to a, a, an articulated need. Um, it's also not precisely everything we're trying to do, which is that it can't be that everything in the area of women's rights is about rape or about sexuality. There has to be a, a lot more there. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of internal advocacy that can reinforce, particularly in a more holistic way, whatever the message is, whatever the, the range of issues is, you know, you do have to start somewhere, but I think there is a ripple effect that happens over time as well.
0: For the record. For the record. (laughs) The the question is if if people are coming out of graduate school nowadays, what's the best way they can get into the organizations? What's the routes they tend to get into the organizations in which you
2: work? I was just going to advertise an internship that we were about to advertise (laughs) (laughs) um, that will be available in the mayor's office uh, for policing and crime. So uh, if anybody's interested, you could come and talk to me. It's, it's a really difficult market at the moment, but I think John's got some jobs as well.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's just giving away jobs this evening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, yeah, we, we... Where I work, we are about to do some recruiting, and I think that Betsy's right. Whereas in my previous job when we were recruiting, I think there's... You know, we were flooded by applications. It's a very competitive market, and I think the big change that I've seen in the time that I've been in the kind of workplace is that when I left university... Some people did internships, but a lot of people do, you know, did, didn't or went straight into first jobs. And um, I mean, where I currently work, we offer paid internships as a routine for, so often for up to six months, but not very many of them. But when we apply for what would be seen as sort of entry-level graduate jobs, most people have a number of pretty impressive internships on their CV, which does make them stand out. And it's not... It's not a requirement, but undoubtedly when we're picking in a very competitive market, those people look good. And I've got no doubt that what I was offering when I started out wouldn't get me onto a shortlist now by comparison to the sort of applications we get from graduate students who've done volunteering, who've done internships, who've done all sorts of unpaid things. And that may be hugely unfair. We try and level that out by offering um, one or more paid internships and making sure that is available to people who haven't had the opportunities to do that before. But it's a very competitive market and I think it's getting harder and harder to get make your CV stand out without some sort of relevant experience and the pretty much the only way to get that is you know, to do internships ideally paid but a lot of people choose to do them unpaid and I can see why. You
0: know I just wanted to don't feel, um, feel obliged. But well yeah, I
4: suppose yeah. I need to make a pitch with social work really actually that is a market that's available because there if for example you get your masters the the there, is, there are programmes nationally that will sponsor you to get onto the course. So when I'm looking for a candidate and I'm looking at senior management level, I'm looking at people who can help influence policy, you can do have some of those political conversations locally. So it's, but you have to get your hands dirty, and that really means the front-end abusive family, dodgy fam- kids... The extended network that is emotionally tiresome. So a purely academic background will only lead you so far. What, particularly from my perspective, what needs to be, and I'm echoing what John's saying, is experience. Now, whether you go and in the state particularly as it's shrinking, more and more that combination of experience plus academic rigor is where you're going to be. So there are, as far as the state is concerned, and social in particular, options where you could actually get paid to do your course, and you can get your hands dirty. And I mean quite... And that then can actually test out some of your theoretical underpinning of does this work in practice. And it's all very isolated, but the higher up the food chain you can get, the more you can actually see what is this research tennis and what you can influence. So now, as I told my sister, that if I was going to be a graduate, I would be looking at some of the classic professions um teaching social work, to criminal justice and social work. I don't know about lawyers. Cause <laughs>
1: um, so... So yeah, so for to be a solicitor there's obviously kind of technical things that you need to do. So you would need the to do the LPC, um, which is possibly the most boring year of anyone's life. Um and then you do a training contract for two years where you are practising um as a solicitor but you are always supervised. Um it is a very difficult market at the moment, particularly in my area of law. Um, Almost all of my clients are funded um, by Legal Aid, um, and I don't know if any of you will have seen anything about Legal Aid, but it is being decimated. I can't speak about it too much, or it will make me very angry. Um, so it is a very difficult market at the moment, um, but it is also, uh, you know, a f- fantastic career. I, I love what I do. Um, in terms of um, making yourself stand out, things like internships and voluntary experience um, is is always going to look good. Um, And it is difficult, but also, I mean, you're all here. Um, You're all clearly very, very capable. So I think, you know, if you've invested so much in your future, then you should definitely pursue it to the end that you want to achieve, um, irrespective of how how challenging things might seem.
5: Um, Human rights is obviously a a small field. It's It's difficult to do, although I think the good news is that it's gotten a lot bigger in the last 20 years or so. So I think that it would be unlikely for somebody to start out at a a place like Amnesty with with quite quite the size of it. Um, In my own department, we're looking at people who have already done human rights work uh, and have done the kind of human rights research that I was was mentioning earlier. To be a human rights researcher, people are looked at the... kinds of things that that we're looking for are not that different, they haven't changed very much. Extremely strong writing, extremely strong research skills, uh, really good interpersonal skills, uh, numerous languages preferably, more than than two or three. Um, Well, relevant languages I guess. Um, And and then the kind of of formal training that is is generally useful. Uh, Law tends to be very useful. Journalism is very useful. Specific area studies are useful for the for the kind of for the kind of analysis of of, of regional or country contexts. So I think the the key though is to try to um, use use uh, opportunities during the the formal sort of university the formal grad, you know, training process just to, to to get relevant experience and then to seek out employment in you uh, know, a, 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 you know, you with know, with an organization that does human rights-related work, um, maybe not not an international one, but doing doing this work solidly in a national context is really really helpful. Then to get to a place like Amnesty International at some stage, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a sequence in order to do it on every side. Right, Ben, you can wait for the
0: coffee. And we'll take one final question. Okay, so the observation is that Amnesty's reach is. Um, is Sometimes that is most limited in parts of Asia and other parts of the world where it's most needed. Is my spin on that? So um, um, <laughs> the question is, what, what, what can the organisation do about that?
5: And part of the question implied that litigation might be a way of generating change. I think litigation is a very piecemeal, expensive, um, limited way of, of generating change. I think there are, lo- there are lots better ways of generating change. I'm, I'm a lawyer, by the way, so I'm saying this contrary to maybe to my own interests. Um, No, I mean I think we have to look to all the all the levers of uh, you know working with with national and working at the national level and working to the extent that international levers are useful, using those as well. So things like the the various UN mechanisms, the Human Rights Council reviews the human rights record of every country on a rotating basis, now every three or four years. Those are moments; they're not enforceable legally. They do generate recommendations. They generate a, a, a certain amount of, of criticism among the different countries. But of course, it's a political process because this is a political body that's doing it. Um, so, but, but there, these are moments to, to, to place some pressure on, on 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 states. Some states don't care about these things. The one state that often doesn't care about international pressure is, in fact, not in this, these regions you've mentioned, but is the United States, right? So we have to use. We have to think about. Different techniques for different countries. Um, even if uh, these obvious large formal institutions don't don't really work, we can also think about um, smaller regional bodies that do exist in places in places like uh, like Asia, like different parts of Africa that you've mentioned, and it's often more effective to get. What, what feels to countries like a peer-to-peer pressure rather than a dynamic where they will often say, may indeed often feel, that they're being lectured to by Western Europe and North America. Um, so, and then finally I think the, the, the there's a critical component of mass mobilization, which, which Amnesty does slightly better than other large human rights groups does to do, do, but but, 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 but other, other, other kinds of organizing do, you know, to do even better at. So this is the idea of sort of like generating popular outrage or making it so that it becomes impossible to ignore demands for change because, because the people themselves are, are, are asking for it. Okay,
0: thank you. Um, right, well, that, that's... Um, I found that fascinating um, well i guess a fascinating mix of biography evidence and insight if i can just twist um, a title. Um, um we now have 40 minutes in which we can um continue this discussion um over tea and cake next door before the lecture starts at five um before we do so um i just remind all our speakers just reminding us that the lines between research law policy and action are extremely blurred and um, it's probably a good thing that they are you. thank you